Psalm 111, which says this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works and given them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen. So we begin a new series today looking at the Psalms, going back to Bible survey. Most recently, you recall that Jason Cruz led us through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which just temporarily kind of leapfrogged over the Psalms and Proverbs. So now we're going to go back and pick up the Psalms. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. We will be looking at Psalm 1 and 2 a little bit today. Um, And really, one might ask the question, how does one survey the Psalms? And I've been asking myself that same question. On the one hand, it could be very simple. You simply survey one Psalm per week, and then you'll be done in a little under three years. But y'all would grow tired of that long before I would. So we're going to keep it to the regular six weeks, and today will be an introduction. I'm trying to give us a little bit of an overview of the entire Psalter, and then in the next five weeks, since the Psalms are made up of or composed of five books, what I'm going to do is to kind of dive into two particular Psalms of each of those books and look at those in a bit of detail. Uh, So that's the plan, and those ten Psalms that we're going to look at are listed on the bottom of your handout. So you'll see what those are going to be. Um, but I've, I've tried to choose, I guess, um, kind of widely and broadly um, in order to cover um, a great uh, number of things because, as we know, there's a great variety in the Psalms. There's a variety of themes, a variety of authors, and there's a variety in the form or the language that the Psalms take. We know that there's Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, confession, imprecation, thanksgiving, there are psalms of wisdom, and there's even psalms that are prophetic. And really, I know that we know this, but the book of Psalms really is unique in Scripture. A couple of definitions for us. The word psalm comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means a song performed to the accompaniment of the harp. And that Greek word is in turn a translation of the Hebrew word I don't know how to say this, but it's mizmor, which means a song or composition performed to musical accompaniment. So at the very beginning, we certainly need to understand that the psalms are songs, and we'll consider this further as we go. 
But perhaps the most distinctive thing about the Psalms, and again, we're familiar with this, is you can open up almost anywhere in the Psalms and immediately find encouragement, hope, and be given a vocabulary for your prayers. Now, this is not to say that you can't do this with other parts of Scripture. You certainly can. But you might not be as successful diving into a random spot in Leviticus or Ezekiel and using them devotionally as we're pretty sure that anywhere we go in the Psalms, we can use it um, to open up avenues of prayer and praise, to lift us up when we're down. And they clearly show us God's goodness, faithfulness, and His care for His people. Indeed, the Psalms might be some of the best love of all of Scripture. And as I've been preparing for this study, I've, I've run across a lot of little quotes and quips of kind of throughout church history little descriptions of what the Psalms are and the way that the Psalms have impacted various um, uh, church leaders and scholars through the years. And I've given you a lot of quotes on the first page of your handout. I thought these were too good not to share. I'm not going to read them, but you should. So, let's get started. First of all, who wrote the Psalms? Well, the first person that would come to mind is probably David. David is responsible for authoring a great many of the Psalms. And, of course, David is commonly thought of as a musician. He's said in 2 Samuel chapter 23 to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. And tradition actually holds that David, during his lifetime, composed some 4,000 songs. He was a prolific songwriter. And out of our 150 biblical psalms, David is described to be the author of 73 of them. That is nearly half. Now, we should remember that David wasn't just a musician in his early life. Now, we often think of the young boy David playing his harp to soothe mad King Saul. But later on, after he became king, it was David that appointed the Levites to lead in corporate worship of singing and choirs at the temple. He also appointed a particular man named Asaph to do the same. And so really, Israel's corporate worship from the time David became king, whatever took place at the temple when Israel was gathered to worship, it was largely something that David was responsible for. A few other authors. We have the sons of Korah. We have 12 psalms in our collection here. Uh, that are authored by the sons of Kor. They probably wrote many more, but we have 12 of them in our Bibles. We'll say more about who these men were when we come to one of their psalms later in the survey. Um, but at least we know from Scripture that this Levitical family, part of them were doorkeepers and guardians of the temple, and then part of them were uh, music leaders, uh, musicians and singers, and one of the three temple choirs that were founded by a man named Heman or Haman. Saying He-Man sounds a little bit too 1980s Hasbro, but <laughs> Heman. Heman was also a Levite, and he have, has one psalm in our Bibles that he wrote, Psalm 88. And then Asaph and Ethan. Ethan's also the same as Jeduthun, and I think there's a reason that Phil and Lisa Connor named their son Ethan instead of Jeduthun. But in any, of, any event, these two men were the leaders of the other choirs that were founded by Heman. Asaph authored 12 psalms that are in our Bibles, and Ethan authored Psalm 89. 
We also have a psalm by Moses, Psalm 90, which of course would have been the oldest psalm chronologically. And then Solomon has two psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. So if we do some Sunday school math and we add all those up, that gives us 105. Subtracted from the 150, that means that there's 45 psalms that we don't know who the authors were. So we might now ask the question, well, how confident can we be or how do we really know that these men really wrote these psalms? Well, now would be a good time to say something about the psalm headings or titles that are in our Bibles. So if you did open up to Psalm 1, which I failed to do, just look over the page to Psalm 3, which is the first psalm that has one of these little titles. Small text in your Bible, and it's going to say, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, your Bible might have another little title that it gives to this psalm. Mine says, A Morning Prayer of Trust in God. But the actual heading we're talking about is where it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. One more quick example that we'll think about as we talk about this. Flip over to Psalm 8, look at one more heading. This one says, for the choir director, on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. So what are these headings telling us? Well, in some cases, they're telling us the occasion or the reason that the psalm was written. In the case of Psalm 3, David wrote this when he was fleeing from Absalom. In the case of Psalm 8, this appears to simply be a song written for one of these choir directors. And it says, on the Giddeth. Well, what is the Giddeth? Well, we don't know. And in fact, there's a number of words like this, old Hebrew words in the psalm headings or titles, that we don't really know what they mean. Scholars have some ideas and conjectures, and some of them might be correct, but we, at the end of the day, I don't think we really know. But the point is, I think this is actually helpful for us, because this tells us that the psalm headings must be very old. Because by the time that the Hebrew Old Testament was being translated into Greek in about the 3rd century B.C., even by that time, these old Hebrew words had apparently already fallen into disuse such that the translators didn't really even know what they meant. And so even now, we don't know what they mean. So we'll encounter this occasionally in our survey. Um, but, but again, ultimately, not only are they old, these headings, but really, scholars have a pretty good consensus that we should see the headings as part of the inspired text of Scripture. The Hebrew Bible, in fact, um, actually gives the heading or title, wherever they exist, as verse number one. So our Bibles don't do that. But at the end of the day, I think we can be very confident that the headings and titles are really are part of the Scripture. And perhaps one more reason that maybe is even more important um, is that in the New Testament, whenever Jesus or the apostles make arguments in their teaching and preaching from the Psalms, oftentimes they make reference to who the author was of the Psalm, which of course was shown in the heading, in order to make the case of their argument. The man that wrote the Psalm was important to how Jesus and the apostles applied the Psalms in the New Testament. So, what about the shape of the Psalter? Does it have a structure of some sort? Well, yes, it certainly does. As I've already said, it's composed of five distinct books. And I'm trying to use that language carefully 
because we wouldn't say that the Psalms is divided into five books. It's not something that was this whole and then is divided into five parts. No, it was something that grew over time. These books would have been compiled and added to really over a very long period of time, um, which I'll speak to in a moment. Your Bibles say this. At the beginning of the Psalter, it says book one, and then as you move on and on, it tells you when book two, three, four, and five begin. Maybe the first question to ask is, well, is this um, compilation arbitrary, or does it give some sense of organization to the whole? Well, no is the answer to the first question. It's not arbitrary. But the answer to the second question, does it give a sense of organization? Well, it's kind of. We can't say unqualified yes, but um, it does give some sort of organization. And in fact, Psalm scholars love to expound at length on the way that the Psalms were composed over time and put together. It can be very interesting, I suppose, for someone, but we're not going to dive into it too deeply. Just a couple of notes, though, that might be helpful. Is that while these five books are kind of chronological, they're not exactly. Now, it's true that books one and two are dominated by Psalms of David, but there are Psalms of David that occur very late in the Psalter, well into book five. And as I said before, the oldest Psalm chronologically would have been Moses' Psalm, but it comes very late in the Psalter at Psalm 90. Now, that said, the latter books tend to focus more on Israel's experience of the Babylonian captivity and their return from the captivity. So that points to a somewhat chronological ordering. But still, I don't think we can say that they're strictly chronological as to when the Psalms themselves were written. But I think we can say that they're chronological as to when these books were compiled over time. Because not only was there the psalmist, even as early as Moses, and going all the way past the Babylonian captivity, the actual man writing the psalm, there were a number of people, and we don't necessarily know who they were, who were holding on to these psalms, really for a period of a thousand years, from Moses' time all the way, like I said, until after the exile. And a number of people were making collections, categorizing, organizing these psalms, until it eventually took the shape that it has in our Bibles now, probably in the 5th century B.C. Is there a focus of each of these books? Well, again, we can kind of say that there is. As I said, books 1 and 2 are largely Davidic in authorship. Many of them are drawn from David's life experience, many times when he's experiencing distress and suffering. Book 3 is filled with psalms of lament, often by the sons of Korah and Asaph. Book 4, among other things, is noted for a collection of psalms that were really focusing on the universal kingship of God, which often contain the refrain, the Lord reigns. And you probably know that within book 5, among other things, we have the songs of ascent. These were psalms that would have been sung as Israel's returning from Persia, going back after Cyrus issued his decree that they could return back to Israel and Jerusalem as the temple's being rebuilt, they would have been singing these psalms of ascent literally as they're ascending up to Jerusalem, up steps to the temple. And in the same way as we'll see in a moment that Psalm 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the entire Psalter, 
I think Psalms 146 through 150 kind of serve as a conclusion to the Psalter, filled with exuberant praise. Now, this is interesting somewhat, um, that Jewish tradition would say that in the same way that Moses gave Israel the five books of the law, so David gave Israel the five books of the Psalms. Now, we realize that David didn't write every one of the Psalms, but so much of his influence is throughout the Psalms. Um, This is what Jewish tradition says, and in some ways, even modern scholars are going down this track trying to make uh, correlations between, say, Genesis and book one of the Psalms, Exodus and book two, and so forth. And there could be something there. There could be some intriguing things, but you'd have to explore that on your own. And then what about the psalm's voice? Now, as much as the psalms are prayers and songs of the individual psalmists, there's a variety of voices. We have psalms in the first, second, and the third person. And in order to rightly understand what the psalm is saying, we need to know who it is that is speaking. Uh, Sometimes it is the individual psalmist calling out to God in prayer or praise. Other times it's the king, usually David, speaking to God the Father. Sometimes it's the king leading the people and speaking to God the Father. Sometimes it's God the Father speaking to his son, the king. Sometimes it's God the Father speaking through his son to the nations. Sometimes it's the people of God speaking to the nations. And sometimes it's the people of God speaking to each other. So there's a number of voices that we need to watch out for as we continue in the survey. We have to know who's speaking. All right, and then if we think about the form, or maybe genre is a better word, we all realize that the Psalms are written in poetry, not prose. That's obvious the way that it's paginated in our Bibles. Um, I think, indeed, the power and imagination of the Psalms stems largely from the fact um, that the psalmist is using metaphorical and very figurative language. Now, while it's true that knowing something about Hebrew poetical devices can be useful to understanding what the psalmist is saying, I'm not going to use this series as an education in Hebrew poetry. Um, We'll talk about parallelism or chiasm when we need to, and we might run into an acrostic, but we're not going to dwell on those things. And that's partly because, at least for my part, I feel like trying to enjoy the psalms by analyzing the Hebrew poetical devices It's like trying to enjoy the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel by analyzing the brand of paint that Michelangelo used. I think it misses the point. But still, the fact that their poetry is important because in some ways we don't read poetry in our Bibles the same way that we read history or gospel or apocalyptic. So we have to remember what the genre is in order for us to find the appropriate clues to meaning and interpretation of the Psalms. So, what about the themes? We're very close to getting to Psalm 1 and 2. If you noted one of, or the little quip from Luther on the first page, he described the Psalms as a Bible in miniature. And if that's the case, then we should expect that the themes that run through the Psalms are really the very same themes that run through the entire Bible. And that's true. On your handout, I've given you a couple of lists of themes that different scholars have honed in on. They have different approaches 
Jeffrey Grogan, I gave you a list of 10 themes that he sees in the Psalms. And then Christopher Ashe deals it da- uh, distills it down to six. And I agree with both of those lists. They're taking different approaches, but I think they're both correct. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it just gives an idea of what all is contained here. Now, if I was to attempt to distill it down even further, if someone was to say, Nathan, what are the Psalms really about? Well, it could be foolish to try to make it go even more narrow than 10 or 6. But I would be tempted to say that I might suggest two themes that we see in the Psalms repeatedly, and they're related to each other. And that would be covenant and kingship. And we actually see these themes introduced in the first two Psalms, which we're going to read in just a moment. Like I said, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as a prologue or an introduction to the entire Psalter. Someone has said... I'm not sure who, um, that the only proper way to come into the Psalms is by the front door. And Psalms 1 and 2 are that front door. So I will read these back to back. Psalm 1 and 2 will make some thematic observations. And then the rest of our time will be used thinking about um, how the Psalms should be used. So, Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, But they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So how is it that these two psalms serve as an introduction to everything that follows? Well, I would suggest that it has a lot to do with those two themes that I suggested of covenant and kingship. In fact, throughout the psalms, all of the major biblical covenants are addressed, either explicitly or implicitly. That is, God's covenant with Noah, 
Abraham, Moses, and David, they're all in the Psalms. And in fact, the new covenant is in the Psalms to the degree that the psalmist is looking forward to the prophesied Messiah to come. Now, the new covenant shows up in the Psalms in uh, shadow and type rather than substance and fulfillment, but it's there. And in fact, for the reformed-minded among us, we can happily say that the Psalms also speak to the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. But I think the two covenants that receive the most airtime in the Psalms are the covenant with David and God's covenant with Moses, which is what we would call the Old Covenant, when God gave His law to His people. And interestingly, these two Psalms focus on those two covenants. Psalm 1 focused on the law. The man that delights in the law of the Lord meditates on it day and night and doesn't give himself to wickedness, the psalm says that this man will experience the blessings promised in that covenant. The wicked, on the other hand, will experience the curses of judgment promised by that covenant. The focus of Psalm 2 is not on the Mosaic, but on the Davidic covenant. God speaks of installing his king in Zion, it says, which of course is God fulfilling his promise to David in David's house and from 2 Samuel 7. And so really in Psalm 2, I think covenant and kingship come together thematically. But the point that I really want to make, and I want to develop this each week of the series, is that we should understand that the man described in Psalm 1, that is the man who is blessed because he loves God's law and meditates on it day and night, that man is David, but it is not only David. And the king described in Psalm 2, the king whom God has installed in Zion, yes, it is David, but it's not only David. Right here at the beginning of the Psalms, I think we're being, I think, given very clear hints um, that where uh, covenant and kingship come together, the psalmist is telling us that God's covenant promises and God's reign, yes, they coincide in King David, but they also coincide in great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only man who ever completely and entirely delighted in God's law. Jesus was the only man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the path of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. And Jesus is the only king who by eternal decree is also God's son, eternally begotten of the Father. Jesus is the only king to whom we can give homage, receive blessing from, and take refuge in. So ultimately, what I'm hoping to do is to show us, and I'm very uh, thankful for what Christopher Ashe has written in his two little, uh, kind of two-volume work on the Psalms, is that he has a brief thesis that says that Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the Psalms. And I want to develop that each week of the series because I think it's correct. And not only is it just correct because it's theologically correct, but I think seeing the fact that Jesus is the sum and substance of the Psalms will be very useful and helpful for us to know how we should use the Psalms ourselves. But before we consider how we use the Psalms, I'm going to play church historian. Matt's not in the room to correct me. 
and we're going to look at the way that the psalms have been used in history. First of all, how were they originally used? Well, I already said this, I think, um, but whenever Israel gathered for public worship at the temple, the psalms would have been sung. David had installed the appropriate people to be song leaders and songwriters, and the content of their worship was the psalms. They were the means, the means that they were sung whenever Israel was gathered for public worship. Now, of course, that was interrupted during the Babylonian captivity, but as soon as they're able to go back, they start writing more psalms, and they pick up where they left off. So now fast forward to the New Testament era. How were the psalms used in the New Testament? Well, they would have been read along with other Old Testament scripture at the synagogues, and no doubt they still would have been sung whenever the Jews gathered for worship. We see in the Gospels that Jesus appealed to the Psalms frequently in his preaching and teaching, as did the leaders of the church in Acts. And usually the way that they were using the Psalms whenever Peter and Paul and others were preaching is they were using the Psalms to make the case that Jesus really was the Christ come in the flesh to save sinners. How else might they have been used? Well, the Scripture doesn't explicitly say this, but I think I'm on good ground to say that there's a very good chance, based on the way we know that Passover was celebrated in Jesus' day, that the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sang at the end of their last Passover would have actually been Psalm 118. There's a group of psalms, 113 through 118, known as the Egyptian Hallel. And those psalms were used during Jesus' day whenever the Passover meal was celebrated. And so there's a very good chance that they were singing the psalms as they were celebrating the meal in the upper room. And you also may be familiar with Paul's exhortation. He says it twice, actually. In Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, he says, telling the church, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiveness, thank, thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, before we pause and ask the question, what does Paul mean by that? Just very briefly, I think it's interesting to think about how the psalms were used after the Reformation. Because we realize that the Reformation was not only a recovery of the gospel, we're grateful for that, but the Reformation was also a, a, an attempt and a successful attempt to reform the way that the church worshipped. Because now, after Luther and Calvin and others, preaching of the word came in the people's language that they could understand. And not only that, but really congregational singing began as a result of the Reformation, singing words in their own language that they could understand. But what were they singing? What were the first songs that the post-Reformation church sang? Well, for some reason, they decided to sing ancient Hebrew poetry translated into whatever language that they had. In fact, during the reign of Bloody Mary, when many English and Scottish were fleeing for refuge to Geneva, where Calvin was, what did they find that Calvin and his associates were doing? They were translating the Psalms into French, and they were singing them in worship. As a result of that, the Scotsmen and Englishmen bring these back when they're able to return, and now we have English versifications of the Psalms. 
And these became so important to the Puritans that they brought them to the New World. And in fact, I really think this is instructive. Someone finally brings a printing press across the Atlantic to the New World, and they're sitting there, I guess, thinking, well, what's the first book we should publish now that we have a printing press here? Well, they publish an English psalm book because that was how important it was to the Puritans that had come to America that they should be able to sing the psalms. Now, I don't have a way to connect the dots from there until now because it's fairly uncommon in many churches to sing the psalms. So what was Paul saying? Let's get back to Colossians and Ephesians. What was Paul saying when he told the church to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, there could be a kind of a careless or I think contemporary reading of this, of these verses that says, well, this is biblical warrant for us to have a contemporary or blended worship service. A modern day evangelical might look at those texts and say, well, let's sing a psalm, let's sing an old hymn, and we'll sing a modern worship song, and then we will have done what Paul told us to do. Well, that won't do. That couldn't have been Paul's meaning. And I'm not saying that anyone here says that. I don't think anyone does. Because Paul, of course, knew nothing of the 20th century evangelical worship wars. Paul knew nothing of our favorite 18th and 19th century hymn writers. Paul knew nothing of our favorite 21st century modern day hymn writers. So what was Paul saying? Well, there's actually a strain of interpretation, and this might surprise you, that I think is actually neither careless nor contemporary, that understands that the three Greek words that Paul uses, psalmos, hymnos, and ode, those three Greek words in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, whenever those words are used elsewhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time, those words are actually referring to biblical psalms. Now, based on exegesis of those passages, some even make the case, I'm not making this case, but some even make the case that the only songs that should be sung in corporate worship in the church are the psalms. And in fact, there are churches meeting today all over the U.S. and especially in England and Scotland where the only songs that they will sing in worship are the psalms. Now, again, I'm not making that case, but I think we should pause and consider what is Paul saying. I think if nothing else, we should be willing to admit the fact that maybe we should consider that the psalms, based on their original use, their historical use, and what Paul is saying, maybe the church would profit by singing them together. We'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But how does the vast majority of the church probably use the psalms today? Well, probably in private devotional prayer. I don't know how you might use the psalms. I can only speak for how I've used them. And I know that over the years I've found it wonderful to be able to open up the psalms and use them to guide my private personal prayer time. But aside from that, I also know that I'm very guilty of what Christopher Ashe calls cherry-picking. That is, if you were to flip through the Psalms in my Bible, you would find a number of verses underlined, bracketed, and probably all do that. 
But those are the verses that I continually go back to when I'm looking for a springboard to praise. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with that either, but I think it also means that I'm unwittingly probably ignoring a lot of other verses. Maybe you've done the same with the Psalms. And it's understandable because what's the alternative? Well, if you were attempt to pray or sing any given psalm, from your point of view, you will inevitably um, find that you need to perform what one writer has called a psalmectomy. I need to cut out these verses. Because can I really sing these or pray these honestly? Let's just think about two examples, perhaps from the most loved of all psalms. First of all, Psalm 23. Well, we love to sing about the fact, as we rightly should, and pray that the Lord is our shepherd, and he leads us beside still waters. But what does it mean for God to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Can I honestly pray that? Would I sing that and mean it? Could I honestly pray along with David that the Lord anoints my head with oil? Could I pray or sing that? Is that really true for me? What about Psalm 51? As grateful as we are that God can create within us a clean, clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, could I honestly join with David and pray, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God? Well, I know that David was guilty of shedding a man's blood, but thankfully I'm not. So maybe I just ignore the word blood and just deliver me from guiltiness, O God. What about the end of Psalm 51? That probably we probably just don't even bother reading at all, which says this By thy good favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. Would I pray that? Would I pray that God would build the walls of Jerusalem? It actually seems to contradict what David said earlier in the psalm when David said that God would not delight, does not delight in sacrifice. I think the problems can be multiplied from there. Any given psalm that we open up to, we're going to find verses that we're unsure if they really apply to us. Or in some cases, we might wonder, should a Christian really pray this at all? when it comes to the imprecations in the Psalms. Could I join with David in Psalm 69, praying about anyone that I know? May their table become, before them become a snare, or may they be blotted out from the book of life? Should I pray that for anyone? Well, I'm not answering these questions right now. I'm only asking them. What are we to do? Well, how do we keep from cutting out verses? Um, how do we sing and pray the puzzling and troubling parts of the Psalms without embarrassment or dishonesty? Well, I, I think this is where we return to Christopher Ashe's thesis that says that Jesus Christ is the sum and the substance of the Psalms. I'm now going to quote his thesis at a bit more length where he says this, quote, Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of the Psalms. Jesus Christ is the singer and subject of the Psalms. The true meaning of the Psalms is found in Him, 
and only those in Christ can sing and pray the Psalms in a way that respects their true meaning, end quote. So, as I said, I think that looking at the Psalms in this light, looking at them in Christ, is a way that will help us greatly in understanding how we ourselves can sing and pray them, whether in public or private. So as we conclude here, I'm going to give us six reasons that Christopher Ashe gives to support this thesis, and I think this is useful for us. And probably each of these reasons will resurface as the, as the survey continues. First of all, the role of David the king. We touched on this earlier when we looked at Psalm 1 and 2. But this is interesting because despite what it says in Psalm 1, that the man who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night, he will be blessed, it actually seems, as you continue to read the Psalms, it seems that the man who loves God's law, in this case largely David, but also other psalmists, it seems that they're actually not blessed and they experience suffering and trial a lot. So how do we make sense of that? The godly actually experience many sufferings while in fact the wicked prosper. Added to this, despite what Psalms 2 says, that the king will be God's son and will rule the world, by the latter part of the Psalter there is no king. It actually appears um, that David's line has been extinguished and that God's covenant promises have been broken. And the psalmist asks some pretty hard questions in this regard. How do we make sense of that? Well, I think we should understand that the sufferings of King David in the Psalms become typical. That is a type of the sufferings of Jesus. And that while it appears for a time that there is no king, we have to understand and hold in the back of our minds, just as the psalmists were looking forward to, that there still would be a coming king who would fulfill God's promise to govern the world. And in fact, that king would precisely be the one who delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night. Another reason would be the full humanity of Jesus the king. The writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews 5-7, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries to the ones who could save him from death. We know that Jesus prayed a lot. And I think it would only be natural to understand uh, that some of his prayers and petitions used the language of the Psalms. No doubt his upbringing would have been shaped and fed by and nurtured by the Psalms. And to the degree that Jesus, as a man, needed to pray in this way, how much more should we? And then again, we've touched on this, number three, the New Testament testimony about Jesus and the Psalms. A few more examples of the way Jesus used the Psalms, and this one I think is very interesting. That did you know that Jesus' actual method of teaching, the fact that he spoke in parables, was in order to fulfill what the Psalms said. Matthew 13, 35 says that the reason Jesus spoke in parables 
was to fulfill what was spoken by Asaph in Psalm 78, where it says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So not only the content of Jesus' teaching, but his method of teaching, the fact that he spoke in parables was in fulfillment of the Psalms. You're probably also aware that Jesus' motivation for cleansing the temple early in his ministry from John chapter 2 was based on David's words in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. And you're probably also aware that on the cross, many of the things that Jesus said during the crucifixion were quotations from the Psalms. He was praying the Psalms, including from Psalm 69, I thirst the cry of dereliction from Psalm 22, and into your hands I commit my spirit from Psalm 31. So the Psalms were often on Jesus' heart and lips. And then again, thinking about the leaders in the church in Acts, Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost, declares that the words spoken by David in Psalm 16 were fulfilled in Jesus, that he would not let He would not abandon his soul to the grave or let his Holy One undergo decay from Psalm 16. Peter says that was pointing to Jesus. And then the writer to the Hebrews also uses words from Psalm 22 to apply to Jesus. And we're actually going to consider that carefully next week. So number four, the work of the Spirit of Christ in inspiring the Psalms. It's worth considering that the very words of the Psalms that Jesus used in his own prayers during his life were actually words that the Spirit of Christ inspired the original psalmist to write. So in a sense, the Psalms were Jesus' prayers long before he ever prayed prayed them during his life on earth. And then number five, the nature of prayer. Sometimes I, well, maybe a lot of times I forget this. But by nature, my desires are not for single-minded love and obedience and devotion to God. Even my holiest prayers are tainted by sin. However, we should be reminded that there is a man who was always, always heard by his father. And not necessarily, I think, because he was God's son, but because his desires were always perfectly aligned with his father's. Jesus always prayed according to God's will because he truly and in every way delighted to do God's will. And then related to that, because of the cross, we may pray in Jesus' name. Perhaps we should say we must pray in Jesus' name. He is our mediator, the man Christ Jesus, Even those of us who are in Christ, we know that our mind and our will and affections are still stained by sin. We still battle with the flesh, the world, and the devil. So we must pray in Jesus' name because it is by him and through him and only through him that God will hear our prayers. So, my goal for this survey is to help us understand how we can pray and sing the Psalms in Christ. We do need to do this devotionally, privately. We do need to do this publicly. And I'm grateful that many times in corporate worship at Calvary, the worship service begins by the reading of a psalm. 
That's wonderful. But I think it's also useful to think about singing the Psalms. And so I've enlisted some co-conspirators to help me with this. So over the next five weeks, as I said, I'm going to look at two Psalms each week. We're going to sing one of those Psalms each week. And Rod May and Dexter May have graciously volunteered to help lead that. So if you've never had a chance to sing the Psalms before, I think it'll be wonderful. One more quote and then we'll be done. This one from Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this, The human subject of the Psalms, whether it be the blessed man of Psalm 1, the one proclaiming himself the Son of God in Psalm 2, the suffering petitioner in Psalms 3 through 7, the Son of Man in Psalm 8, is Jesus Christ. Indeed, the Psalms are ultimately the prayers of Jesus Christ, Son of God. He alone is worthy to pray the ideal vision of a king suffering for righteousness and emerging victorious over the hosts of evil. And now we'll use another psalm to close in prayer. This, the shortest psalm, Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Amen.